Expedition 44, here again with Matt and Ryan. What number is this? Film um, three, three, right? Yep, All right, yep. film three on First Peter, and today we are First Peter 1, 13 through 16. We're gonna jump right in. These are long films, so we're gonna cut to the chase. Matt, let's read First Peter 1, 13 through 16. All right, therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace being brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not conform to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So essentially, whether you call this a letter or a sermon or something like that, this is kind of where it begins. We've already done the introduction to it, and this is where he jumps into it. He, he set the table in our last film, and now this is it. What What is the thesis statement? What's going on here? Yeah, so this chunk here, 13 through 16, is the whole thesis statement for the letter, sermon, homily of First Peter. Yep. And he starts it with a therefore, which means... You need to figure out what the therefore is. Why is therefore? There? What is <laughs> yeah. it connecting? Yeah. yeah. So it's connecting everything we talked about in the last episode. Yep. Really, the being a he's using kadosh, set apart, holiness language, and yep. that's the whole thing of being uh, foreigners, aliens in this world, and that your behavior shouldn't conform to the pattern of the world, but to the pattern of Jesus and God's kingdom. Now all this is going to be prefaced in Christ. This is the thing that Matt and I really like about this. We've been, you know, all the videos, if you didn't notice, in the last six months have been on Christiformity. Mm -hmm. And so we're talking about the connection that, that Christ in us is everything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not just some abstract morality or ethics that you can get from natural revelation or something like that, but it's based all in Christ, the revelation of Christ. Um, his incarnation, and, and that's what we need to base our theology on and, ba and base our ethics and our morality on. Yeah, so after therefore, we get to this phrase, prepare your minds for action. Most people, this is one of those uh, verses that a lot of people have memorized, and this isn't the way they memorized it. They would have memorized it in the King James. Yeah, they gird up your loins. <laughs> yeah, which is really interesting because this is Hebraic language. Mm -hmm. this, this goes back to in the Hebrew culture, when you became esteemed, you no longer did things like run around and play basketball with your kids and stuff like that. You kind of, it was kind of a more high and mighty, distinguished kind of thinking. And those type of people really didn't ever gird up their loins. And that goes back to this, the story of the prodigal son of God is going to not only gird up the loins of his tunics, but he's gonna lose them totally, taking running. on complete humility, running to take on his son. So that's that links all that kind of language and there's also a sense of running without tripping or running without looking back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the action here is not only, it's using a physical action, but comparing it to your mind. Yeah. So he's saying gird up the loins of your, of your mind. So it's really because your mind and your heart affect the way that you act outwardly. So he's saying that get the inside correct and it'll take care of the the outside where Jesus like in in the Gospels talks to the Pharisees is whitewashed tombs is yeah. outside that yeah their their actions look like they're um, they're living righteously but really they're got dead bones inside so this is a little bit of a word play here uh, you know trying to connect it translating it to Aramaic or Hebrew it, I haven't figured it out if it is a word play but it could be a word play in that it's making fun of Pharisees and Sadducees for sitting all high and mighty, that's the gird up the loins thing, that that you've lost your minds. Do you guys get the translation there? Mm -hmm. And then the, he goes on next to um, talking about being sober in spirit. So this uh, word nepho means to be discipled, to be self-controlled, and the implications are that we should be self-controlled and disciplined in our state of mind, prepared for action to be completely like Jesus and not entangled to the ways of the world. Yeah. So when he says sober, we like to think of that in terms of alcoholism. Yeah. That's that's right where we go in our modern language. Did it also mean that in that culture? I think it probably Could've did. Been. Yeah. There there's definitely some you know thinking that way. Um but it doesn't always mean that. It kind of means a clear judgment or not to think irrationally or something like that. And again, that kind of goes back to what could be a wordplay very much pointing towards the Sadducees, 
Pharisees, which would have matched Jesus's language several times. Mm -hmm. um, next, he leads into what's called the future grace. So he said the grace that's um, going to be revealed to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And likely talking about the second coming here, but um, it's interesting that this is in the present tense communicating um, that it's being brought. It's an action happening in the present, yeah. but hasn't completely been con like fully realized yet. So you'll notice that Matt and I, being partial preterists, we hardly ever interpret things eschatologically. Like if there's any room not to, we don't want to go there. Mm -hmm. And so there's there's throughout all these things, are we saying, is this now or is this future or is it a little bit of both? And this one definitely seems to have like a eschatological nature of mm -hmm. out in the future with it. But we also, in that same breath, don't want to discount the now. The now yeah. is definitely in the in the scripture and we don't want to think through that or past that. Yeah, and I think Peter could be communicating that Christ could come at any time to his audience, but um, really the the thrust of his argument is the church needs to be prepared in their minds of how they will respond to persecution that is coming upon them. So people all often ask us these questions about millennial type of thinking and you know is there a seven-year tribulation thought within this within this pile of text? Um, I don't think so. I think it kind of flies in the face of like rapture thinking, seven-year tribulation thinking because Peter is saying that these believers will not be taken out of their persecution, but it's saying that they need to make up their mind how they will respond to the persecution yeah. coming upon them in these last times. So just so. if you're if you're having a hard time putting this there, Matt and I view this whole 2,000 years. Where we're living right now, if there, if there is any kind of tribulation, we're there. You see it yeah. all over the world with Christians, uh -huh. and if you're not experiencing tribulation, you should be. Yeah, he's really speaking of that they need to make up their minds that their allegiance is going to be set on Christ no matter the circumstances that come against them, whether hypothetically there is a rapture, which we don't believe in, or a seven-year tribulation, right. because the Bible says we'll always face tribulations as yep. believers, and that's why he says that they are chosen and foreknown because those who serve God will be in these type of circumstances because of their allegiance. Yeah. So this isn't escapist language going on no. there, and that's where a lot of people put it. And so it's very important to interpret the text going, you know, with exactly what's being said and to not read anything else into them. And this is unfortunately a piece of uh, scripture that a lot of escapism traditionally has been read into. Yep. So next, uh, Peter uses the analogy of them being obedient children. So. Peter, we talked a lot in our last episode about kind of the household, the kinship language, and Peter returns to that here in his thesis statement saying that their family and their household and they need to be obedient children, and obedient children become like their parents. Yeah. And so Jesus is depicted as the brother um, and the firstborn of many brothers is the talk as Paul uses the language of, and God, already twice that we've seen in this short section of first Peter that we've already gone through is referred to as father yeah so we we kind of get through this whole sense right here that this is very serious language when he's kind of going through obedient children being conformed this is like put on your thinking cap and you know let's get to work here mm -hmm. rather than you know and, and that's kind of a double meaning because he's talking about that as they receive the message that he's given but also talking about that in their actual life as they go out from here. Yeah, and so he leads this from being obedient children into being conformed. So he talks about language of conformity, uh, conformity to to Christ and not to the former lusts which they had. And so in this, the literal Greek phrase means to be fit into a mold. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. So in, in Hebrew, the idea was that uh, it was a literal imprint and we would see these imprints all the time in fact when you would seal yourself and that language mm -hmm. gets in this later we're going language, to see that yeah. but psalm 1 jeremiah 31 it's all talking about that we might be in the footprint of god and this is really interesting because eventually we're going to become recreated sons and daughters of the lord and 
uh, after our sanctification is complete, that we will live and reign as gods, which is really interesting. Mm -hmm. So it's actually that he is in the process of imprinting us to be holy ones. Yeah, and in the New Testament, this word for being conformed or being fit into a mold is only used in one other spot in the New Testament, which is Romans 12, 2. Not be conformed yep. to the ways of this world, but renew your mind. Yes. <laughs> so that connection <laughs> yeah, ties into this whole thesis statement is Paul and Peter are tracking on the same level here yeah. about conformity in Romans 12, 1 and 2, and First Peter here, verses uh, 13 to 16. So it's all gearing up towards holiness and purification language. Mm -hmm. that, that is where we're going with this thing is that Paul is, you know, talking to, or I'm sorry, Peter's talking to this group of people that are going to be on the fence of being recreated holy people. Are mm -hmm. they there or are they not there? So what does holiness mean? Yeah, so Bible Project has an awesome video on yeah. holiness. So if you want, pause, go flip over to Bible Project, look at their holiness video. I'll put um, a link to that. Yeah, so it's it's a great video explaining what holiness, but really, if you break it down, God's holiness is what separates him from what is common or profane. And this is not just moral perfection or legalism as our Western minds usually go to, though morals and behavior have to deal with this discussion. Holiness is really just being set apart, being different from the, the things of this world or the, or the common or profane things. And we made a video on perfection and we get really into this purification language. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the context of holiness here is it's about resisting the mindsets and the patterns of the world. It's about uh, um, imitating God, imitating Christ specifically, and Peter will go on in chapters 2 through 4 to show how believers are to live this out. He's just setting forth the principle of what this means. Yeah. And he quotes here in verse 16, Leviticus uh, 19 verse 2, which is the verse that we kind of always know as, yeah. um, be holy for I'm, therefore, because I am holy. Um, and this is interesting too, because it's not a direct quote. And this happens all the time yeah. in the New Testament that, you know, you see that this is quoted someplace mm -hmm. and then you go try to find it and you go, where, where is it? How does it say that? And so it does represent a little bit of a, a New Testament authorship, loose quoting. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes we, you and I can't necessarily find it in the Bibles that we have. You have to go back mm -hmm. to sometimes the Septuagint or, mm -hmm. you know, different versions or something like that. But this particularly is going to be marked language again. This is this is kind of going into that imprint again or something mm -hmm. like that. And in the Old Testament thinking uh, with, with his people, you might remember... Uh, I've, I've talked about this in videos other places, but the whole idea of an idol was that that was supposed to represent that mm -hmm. God to people that would walk past it, that that land was marked for that God. Mm -hmm. And this language is that you and I are to be kind of like those pedestals of marking God's land, sacred land, sacred space, sacred people, that God is actually not only around us or in this land, but directly inside of us. Yeah, so it's not just about where we usually go, like we say, like legalism or, or yeah. um, this, I guess, pious self-righteousness right. type, type thing. It's, it's really about lives being conformed, called out of the world, yep. not, not following those types of ways, but following, yeah, following the ways of God. And when you look back at Leviticus 19 too, where we believe that Peter's pulling this from is, it's not an imperative. It's not a command. It's a yeah. declaration yes. of who the people are yep. rather than a command of, uh, I'm holy, you're not, try harder. Right. <laughs> so when you make this declaration of allegiance, both in the uh -huh. Old Testament and the New Testament, that's exactly what it was signifying, that you are declaring that your life was going to be set apart to try to be on this mm -hmm. road to holiness or sanctification, as yeah. you might say. And then holy in, in Greek, hagios, it's the same word that we sometimes translate as saint, um, which one, we yeah. don't really like the word saint, but we like holy ones. Yeah. And so that connects back, it's used 20 some times in the um, Old Testament to refer um, to spiritual beings, yeah. but only once to refer to a human, yeah. which is interesting that he's calling the church here to be 
holy ones. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's it's all sacred language, purification mm -hmm. language, sacred people, sacred assembly, fellowship equals life, and all of that is bathed and covered in a sacred type of living. Yeah, it's interesting in Psalm 89.5, it connects holy ones in the assembly, which is the same word, um, ecclesia for yeah. church. And you kind of got that connection of the holy Bride ones are God's. Connect the dots. Yep. 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 And his council, his uh, divine council is his assembly. And so it's connecting all those dots of being set apart um, apart from this world, and yeah. that's what it is. So. so when you kind of start at the Old Testament, you get these this you know kind of term of um, created holy ones, and then later, you know, that's Tower of Babel language and everything else. We get here, and it's those that are set apart, recreated. And so, you know, whether this is replacement language for the fallen spiritual beings or, you know, anything like that, He's saying that these are marked, that you need to live completely for this type of living, that you are set apart in the sacred way of doing things, not of this world is where the whole application goes. Yeah, and so when we look at kind of these beginning few verses of First Peter and his thesis, it's really that God's people must be separate from the world because God's kingdom looks nothing like the world. Yes. <laughs> so relevant today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so that's kind of the big thrust. If you want to summarize it in a sentence, that's really what it is of this whole thing. So now, we need to change our minds. I always find it interesting. If you were to go back and read about the Holy Ones in Light and the War Scroll or the Sons of Light and, you know, all of this stuff that was going on, that language, I mean, that could have been written right now and it would be so relevant. And so, you know, out of all the things we read, that's where Matt and I say, like, you know, this world, this nation, it's not our kingdom stay in our kingdom. Yep. So let's keep moving. Um, we're going to read now 1 Peter 1, 17 to 21. So um, I'll take that. Yep. If you address as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he has foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. All right, so here we have in verses, um, today we're covering basically the verses 13 through 210 in this episode. and But after the thesis statement, verse 17 through 210 is Peter's first argument. Yeah. In, in Greco-Roman rhetoric, you have multiple arguments after you lay out your thesis. And so this is, we're gonna cover in the rest of the episode, his first argument for his thesis. So it's laid out that he's going to try to get you to change your mind about the way that you're doing mm -hmm. or thinking. And there's going to be, you know, both a challenge to the mind but also a call to action yep so his first argument is how to live as redeemed aliens and exiles and so he's going to get into that and his point here is that this theology so being exiles being part of god's family his chosen ones his holy ones it informs their practice and their behavior and so the saving work of jesus both for us and in us as believers is the ground for the transformation of and the foundation for our Christian ethics. The way Matt just explained that is really good. So if you need to pause it and rewind the film mm -hmm. and listen to that again, I don't think you can lay it out much better than that. So this kind of gets down to judgment of works. There's, yep. Is there a separation of faith and works or what's going on? Yeah, so in verse 17 it lays out that God is an impartial judge and he's going to judge based on works. So. In Protestant theology, in the tradition, it's, it really separates, like you said, faith and, and works. And this is kind of due to Catholic abuses in yeah. the Middle Ages. And then the Reformation slide way too far into just the belief, the mental ascent ditch uh, belief systems, yeah. rather than tying ethics to those belief systems. Growing up in an evangelical church, I kind of got the idea that like works didn't mean anything, that mm -hmm. it was all about faith. They're way underplayed, and that doesn't seem to be a lot of the message here. He's very much tying them in. Yeah, so in the early church, we saw um, that faith and works are two sides of the same coin. Yeah. It, they weren't 
um, opposed to each other. Exactly. And we can see this like in James, but also the judgment on works is repeated over and over and over in scripture. We got it in Psalm 62, Proverbs 24, Jeremiah 17, Matthew 16, Romans chapter 2, Romans 14, Revelation 2, Revelation 22, just to name a few. Yeah. <laughs> Those are just all ones that say the judgment will be based on works. Yeah. So James also says, if you go a pause, read James 2, 17 to 24. It's actually the only time that faith alone... It's kind of the reformed passage of, <laughs> yeah. you know, alone, alone, alone. Alone, yeah. but he, <laughs> it's the only time that faith alone appears in the Bible. It says that you're not justified by faith alone, but yeah. also by your works. Yeah. So, and Luther called the epistle of James an epistle of straw because he didn't like that very much. <laughs> but Pick and choose what you like. Yeah, yeah, but our faith is not just belief, but it's our allegiance. Allegiance comes with action, and action is works, and it's... And basically, your allegiance is proved by your works and not your belief system. Yeah, yeah. So, so he phrased this works of the law, and some people don't really know what to do that do with that. We see it again in uh, Galatians three ten, and this is uh, citing Deuteronomy twenty seven twenty six, which is actually a little hard to figure out because again, it's not a direct quote. So you kind of go back and go, how how does that mean? And in Galatians, like Paul, Paul seems confused to me in Galatians because in one hand he says, anyone under the law is cursed. And then like right after that, anyone who doesn't keep the law is cursed. Well, how can that be? How can you be one or both of them or something like that? So is this Paul in one of his later writings having a senior moment or something like that? Well, Matt and I in theology say they have to work together. So um, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's not keeping the law. So works of the law isn't a direct equation to keeping the law. It goes back to the problems of people legalistically trying to live this way, but their hearts and their minds aren't connected. And that's exactly what First Peter is hitting on here as well. Mm -hmm. So it's an argument towards kind of a thought of the believers of, you know, working really hard to look good, but not really being good. Like wash tombs, yes. <laughs> we just talked about. So, especially in Paul, um, which I think Peter and Paul, their theologies match up. Um, in Paul, when he uses the term works of the law, we can look back at uh, like the way it was used in the culture. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, it seems like it yep. was a Hebrew idiom for certain practices, which put one in, um, a certain interpretation of the law. Taking on certain practices made you a a good Jew, yeah. basically. So it could be, some have said that this is uh, certain Torah laws, like um, the food laws, or circumcision, or celebrating holy days, and how you keep the Sabbath. Um, you can see that in 4QMMT in the, in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so if Paul uses that same idiom of works of the law, or works there, He's referring to specific Jewish practices and not some pious, self-righteous, trying to earn your salvation type of thing. No, he's saying that the things that mark you out as a Jew aren't the things that save you. It's your allegiance to God is the true mark of a disciple. Yeah, so it's faith equals allegiance to God. And this is another thing that it's geared towards, he's talking about these Jewish practices, yet it seems to be geared towards both Jews and Gentiles that saying that mm -hmm. the law is holy. That's a Romans 7 play. And mm -hmm. so don't simply rely on the law, but live for Jesus out mm -hmm. of your heart in sacred allegiance following him. Yeah, so Paul's argument, and I believe it, and it could be Peter's also because he has a Jew and Gentile church here, there, yeah. um, is that the ethnicity not works righteousness is what this whole thing is about. So if you're not saved by your ethnicity, and to be a Jew meant you kept Torah, that right. was their ethnic identity. Yep. Um, and so Gentiles don't need to take on Torah and become Jewish. And so they're not saved by works of the law or by becoming Jewish. So Paul's argument is actually more about ethnocentricity or racism yeah. <laughs> rather than it is about self-righteous, pious behavior yeah. that tries to earn your way to God's goodness. Yeah. So the whole thing is kind of talking about during our stay on earth, here's, here's how we should conduct ourselves. And again, 
there might be some going back, some eschatological language, but I would really encourage you to read all of it for the now. Yeah, and so when he's talking about that um, God is an impartial judge, so he's talking about Jew and Gentiles yep. here, when he talks about impartial, he's not saying, um, and he's saying that because of um, Gentiles are this one group, Jews are this one group, but the wall is torn down, so they're actually a church. God judges impartially, and it's not necessarily based on Gentiles keeping Torah. Right. Um, he's saying that it's the deeds done that reflect Jesus. You're going to be judged for or against that, and God is a righteous judge, and he's going to judge impartially. Now, to us, that sounds like a broken record because we hear it all through the New Testament. But uh -huh. to this group, you know, this this might have been the first words of mm -hmm. being held accountable to, yeah. you know, be together in unity. Yeah, and then he, he finishes up that verse with this line is during our stay on earth, and he's not talking about escaping to heaven, right. but he's talking about the audience's circumstances in the present that they are currently exiles, but they're children of God, and yeah. eventually. This is going to be reversed, and they will actually be citizens and children in the new creation. Yeah. So yeah. it's kind of a, a already not yet type yeah. thing. So. Next thing we need to get to is there's um, language that is sometimes interpreted differently. So I call this redemption redemption ransom language, and a lot of people want to read it as ransom, which I'm actually okay with, mm -hmm. but. Our interpretation of ransom is probably different than what you might get a reformed interpretation yeah. of ransom. If you want to learn more on our interpretation of ransom, we'll run through it here. But um, deeper dive, go watch our um, atonement series, The Gospels episode. Yep. What, what do the Gospels say about Jesus' death? Yep. Um, that, that episode will get way more into the this ransom language and also the Exodus episode in the atonement series as well. Um, so here... Um, what Peter's saying is that Jesus was put forth um, and you were ransomed um, not with imperishable things but with the precious blood of Jesus yeah. So or redeemed. Um, so when we think of this word we usually go to like um, if you think of ransom of like taken or die hard or yeah. those type of things yeah. as a bad guy captures yeah. you yeah. and you need to pay a sum of money to get away but this isn't exactly it kind of is in the picture, but it wasn't exactly the way it would have been thought of in the ancient world. So you got to think of, you got to kind of go back to the Exodus. That mm -hmm. that really, you know, puts when you're when you're taking something, any language. I want to go back and see where did this start and what it, did it look like. So when you go when you take this and go back to Exodus language, you kind of get to the point where God is asking for His people to be released and. Eventually they are released, and how much did he have to pay to get them? Yeah, that's the question. Um, we see Jesus, he makes a specific statement about the purpose of his death in the Gospels, Matthew, uh, in Matthew and in Mark. Um, it says, Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so when we're talking about ransom here, we're not talking about someone being kidnapped, um, but it's basically the portrait of Jesus' life, when he uses that Greek word lutron, which is the word ransom or redemption here, it specifically meant in that culture the price of the release of a slave yeah. from his slavery, or yeah. her slavery. And that's his prime, primary use. Um, so it's neither necessarily a sacrifice for sin yeah, or, or punishment for transgression, but it's the price paid to release a slave. And so when we go back to the Exodus and we say, what what did it cost? What did he pay? And what you're going to notice is there was no transaction mm -hmm. of earthly or monetary value going on there. And that's yeah. the problem with ra ransom thinking of, I paid a price for this. Mm -hmm. I gave you something that I might get something in exchange for that. That's the wrong way of thinking yeah. of ransom. So ransom isn't substitution, but it's a price being paid to release somebody. So Jesus didn't become a slave in order for us to be released as slaves. It's Jesus was the price paid to release us from slavery. The question is, the age-old question we need to answer, who was the ransom paid to? <laughs> that's that's the, the million dollar question here yeah. is when you think of ransom, who is the question paid? So our, our options can be God, the devil, death, or maybe something else. So yeah. 
So when you go back to Exodus and you actually look at, you know, what did what did God, Moses, going to pay the Egyptians so that the people could leave? They didn't pay them anything. Yeah. There, there wasn't anything. This is actually kind of terrorism language. Uh-huh. This is like saying, like, we're not going to drop to this level and give you anything through the power that's been given to us. We're just going to get it back. Yep. Yeah, it's just simply a, a release, and we'll get into what exactly yeah. happened there here. But some people all put this ransom or redemption language to connect it to the sin offering. But the sin offering in the Old Testament is never said to be a ransom. For Anyone. some want to say that this ransom or redemption language is connected to the sin offering. But the sin offering in the Old Testament is never connected to ransom anywhere in Scripture. This is one of those things that I actually hear preached and taught all the time, and it's really not good theology whenever you hear somebody putting it that way. Yeah, and we talked about last week the sacrificial offerings, especially the blood, were never applied to people. They were applied to temple objects. And again, purification, sacred language, but there isn't any kind of exchange going on between the devil or something like that. Again, you got to get that kind of thinking out of your mind. Unfortunately, again, raised in an evangelical church Mm -hmm. like most of us have been, that is burned in the images of our head and it's one of those traditional things that we've got to get out of. Yeah, so let's look at the Exodus specifically to see how this should be interpreted. Is Exodus 6.6, we use that word redemption um, when Moses comes um, before Pharaoh and says, and God speaks to him and says, I will redeem you, talking to Israel, with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Yeah. So is God paying off the Egyptians here? We see that there's 10 plagues then, and then later it's um, Moses, uh, God through Moses says, I, I will bring judgment on the gods of Egypt. This is a, this is a cosmic battle mm-hmm. going on. In fact, you know, when we read the story, we want to read it between men, mm-hmm. Moses against Pharaoh, things like yeah. that. But the way that it was more Hebraically written is that we're, we're reading a battle of the gods going on here. And this is kind of, you know, going back to that Tower of Babel kind of thinking yeah. that there's a rebellion of the fallen gods and this is mm-hmm. this is a problem and it's being reconciled. Yeah, here. in Exodus 12, 12 and 13, after it says that, it talks about the blood, which is also connected here that Peter's using, is the blood will be a sign on your houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I'll pass over you and no destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. After this plague happens, the 10th plague, Israel is released from their slavery, but did God pay anybody off? No no payments going on <laughs> yeah. here. No one's getting paid off. No, There's no be- kind of debt or anything yeah. like that. Basically, the gods of Egypt are getting their butts kicked. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that's what we see. The picture of the cross is that the devil is getting his butt kicked. Yeah. <laughs> but it's upside down. It looks like Jesus is actually getting defeated. But actually, he's defeating sin, the de- death, and the devil through his work on the cross. And... The, the blood there um, is what uh, basically death is passing over us. Yeah. We go through death, through the resurrection, we don't experience death. Yeah. So this, this blood has, has kind of been a marking thing of life. You know, this mm-hmm. is what gives life. It's protection in this cosmic battle that going out. It's God's people language. I just wrote a thing about healing that kind of contrasted the Nahash snake and talks about talks about uh, Moses setting it up and that Jesus is going to claim that kind of language and that's exactly mm-hmm. what all this is tying into of, yeah. of Jesus of healing and reclaiming and talking about ransom that we truly belong to him but again there's there's no payments or or yeah anything like that going on. Yeah, so let's connect Peter's words in the Exodus here with a few things. So Jesus' death is seen as a cosmic battle uh, for the release of slaves from hostile powers and not for paying off an angry God. Right. Um, So ransom doesn't communicate a substitution. Jesus didn't become a slave in our place, but rather God's outstretched arm frees us from our captors. Yep. Sin, death, and devil. So Jesus does what the Passover lamb did in his blood, it saves us from death. So most most reformed people, and I really would say almost 
any pastor does this, uh -huh. they kind of create this courtroom scene when mm -hmm. there's really no reason to put it that way. It's really more of a rescue mission than anything else. Yeah, so and then in the Exodus, the ransomed people become God's nation. Yeah. <laughs> so, and that's what he's talking about here. And ransom communicates the rescue mission, like you said, not yep. the courtroom scene. Right. So Peter's point here is that Jesus rescued us from the world, so don't return to that way of living. Yeah. And that's his big point here with the blood and the ransom then. So what he's essentially saying is don't continue to live as the dead. Uh -huh. Take on the new life. Yep. So let's get into uh, next. It talks about Jesus being foreknown. This connects back to the foreknown earlier in, in this chapter that we talked about last week in the first verse, basically, for the second verse of, of Peter. It links, links back to that, and it communicates much of the same idea of relationship. Yep. As it's the triune God, the relationship they had before creation, that's what it means kind of the foreknown. In Karl Barth's theology on election, which I kind of like, is Jesus is the foreknown one and the elect one, and we become unified with his identity as that when we're in Christ. It's not right. an imputed righteousness, nope. it's that it's incorporated righteousness. Yeah. Yeah. Because of Christ's righteousness, when we enter into him, it's not that imputation type language is incorporation. And Michael Gorman does a really mm -hmm. good job. He calls this participation theology and it would explain it that through our participation in Christ that we become his, he becomes ours. So it's this mm -hmm. unified one in together, one in me type of thing. Yeah, early church father Athanasius really got this. He became what we are so that we might become what he is. This yeah. is a big quote from him. So, and then he finishes out this kind of section here with uh, talking about the last times, being revealed in the last yeah. times. So throughout the New Testament, when we see that word end times in the New Testament or yeah. last times, it's not this seven year period at the end of history, but it's all the time from Jesus' resurrection to the consummation of the age is the last time. So we're there, we're yeah. in it right now. And yeah. that's, that's really the difference is that a lot of um, dispensational thinking is going to be looking at those end days that we're not there yet. We're waiting for, we're kind of in this crazy holding period and things are gonna get nuts in the tribulations of the end days and you're gonna have to hold on and do all this. But when you read it, this way in the text, it's actually, we're already there. That In fact, we've been there for 2,000 yeah. years right now. And things can be hard or can be tough, but the important thing is that we have been already claimed. Yeah, so kind of in this section, he's calling people to examine the futile worldly customs that we need to distance ourselves from because we are called and set apart. Yeah. And as exiles, we're called to conduct ourselves in fear, which is rather translated as awe and reverence yep. because during because of the work that Jesus has done. So live out our stay here until we are in the new created heavens and earth in a way that honors God with awe and reverence. Yeah, and this goes back to the fear of God. And so again, too many people dispensationally, they've been living in fear and it's not the white version of fear you're yeah. supposed to be living yeah, it's in not terror. awe, reverence holiness this whole section is about holiness why would you inter interpret these words any differently than that yeah so let's move on then we're gonna read first uh, peter 1 22 through 2 3 and uh look at that so since you have an obedience have been in obedience to the truth have purified your souls uh for a sincere love of the brethren uh, fervently love one another from the heart for you have been born again not of seed which is perishable but of imperishable that is through the living and enduring word of God for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flowered grass the grass withers and the flower falls off but the word of the Lord endures forever and this is the word that was preached to you therefore putting aside all malice all deceit all hypocrisy and envy and all slander like newborn babes Long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to your salvation, if you have if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Now, all of these things are connected. The whole book of First Peter mm -hmm. kind of needs to be read together in the same yep. reading. But you'll notice we went into the first three verses here, mm -hmm. and so the reason we're going to deal with them together is because it's the same same idea, same idea, same thought pattern, and. 
I mean, here Peter's talking about keeping your mind succinct and clear. So in the way that we teach, we're going to keep our mind succinct and clear at the same time. Yep. So he begins talking about obedience and love. So the results of our faithfulness, so connecting to verse 21 there, is obedience to the truth. And when we are obedient and we're obedient to the truth, it's what makes us pure is what it talks about. Now, this is a direct correlation to the way that Jesus lived because, again, the Pharisees and things like that are going to talk about moral and ethical uprightness. That's mm -hmm. that's what that's what they think is purity. But Jesus repeatedly speaks oppositely to that and brings back language like loving others. And uh -huh. so purity the, of the heart. purity of the heart is transforming what is going to set apart people, but also graft and bring them together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so purity isn't so much, like you said, defined by moral and ethical uprightness, but how we love others. But, and when it talks about the household of God there, it's talking about those in the church. And I talk about contronyms all the time. One day I'm going to write a book on this, but this is contronym language that we are set apart to be brought together. Yep. So, born again and seed is some of the language that he uses here and so in verse 23 it speaks of the status of those who have been born again so remember born again isn't just some spiritual out there metaphor right. it's being part of God's household that's yeah. the primary metaphor part of God's household part of God's kingdom so those who have this are of a seed that is imperishable through the word of God yep we believe that's Jesus yep <laughs> so exactly. So, um, and it says that those who are not of this seed are perishable. Yep. And this kind of connects to our idea of conditional immortality. Yeah. And yeah. we kind of see that it's everywhere. It's reinforced by the quotation here from Isaiah um, 40, 6 through 8, that he talks about the grass and the flowers, that, which talks about the mortality of man. We don't have an immortal soul. Right. We are mortal the believers, the household of God are given eternal life. Everybody else doesn't have mortality because they're cut off from the tree of life. So this is a squirrel moment. Time yep. out, step out of here. We did a whole series on hell and Matt and I sit pretty, pretty firmly on conditional mortality. And mm -hmm. so the reason why we land here is I, I would like to think that universal reconciliation is where everything is gonna go. I mean, if that's what God wants, if he can do it, then why wouldn't that be the case but there are too many scriptures that seem to imply this idea about a finality of death. And this is one of them. And I'm going to just encourage you to think that once you take on that mindset of, of getting away from that, you know, uh, ECT mindset that you just read normal verses like this and they line up. Mm -hmm. you're, you're not doing any kind of theological gymnastics or making things, you know, bend or work or anything like that. You just read it and you go, oh yeah, that's a, that's an allusion to what we think of hell. Yeah. So, um, it talks about here, the word of God is said to endure forever and be connected to the imperishable seed, which we know that imperishable seed is Jesus. Yep. Um, we see that elsewhere in scripture in Galatians like 3.16. It says the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Um, it doesn't say seeds, plural, but referring right. to his seed, singular, which is Christ. Yep. And then you go down a little bit in that chapter and it talks about that you are all sons of God through the faithfulness of Christ. and that you're bat when you're baptized into Christ, you're clothed with him, and there's no Jew, Greek, um, all of that, all are one in Christ, and you're all Christ's descendants. So sometimes we get the idea that New Testament authors think a little bit differently of different things. You, mm -hmm. you read like, you know, Matthew compared to Mark, and there's a little bit different of the, uh, flavor. Some people even might say a different theology, mm -hmm. but when we read Peter and Paul, it seems to be very like-minded on the same page. Yeah, um, so, when we look here at um, in First Peter uh, one verses twenty four and twenty five, it's a quotation from Isaiah chapter forty. It's interesting in um, in both the Masoretic text and the Septuagint that they use the word God um, there. So yeah. Theos in yep. Greek, um, Yahweh in or Adonai in, right. in um, Hebrew. But here they change it to Kyrios in Greek, which is the title for Jesus rather than for God. Why would they do that? <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. So it's, it's connecting basically the, the 
the thought of the the unity in the Godhead yeah. that that's saying that Jesus is not just a lower part of God, but he's he's like God. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's allegiance language, and uh -huh. that's another reason why it's important sometimes to really dive into what's going on mm -hmm. because they're quoting something. So you're going to want to read the original quote, figure out where they got that, mm -hmm. what did it mean in the original context, and then. How or why did they change it? So in this in this version, what was going on with you know the first time they quoted it? That's going to be going all the way back to this this thing of like these other gods. You know we uh -huh. talk about that all the time. So the context was allegiance upon other gods, but now the context is allegiance to Jesus to Jesus over Caesar. Yeah, and so that's why he uses Lord because that was Caesar's title, yes. but it's applied to Jesus. So when he says Jesus is Lord, which is the proclamation of the gospel, yeah. it's saying if Jesus is Lord, it means Caesar's not. And it's saying if Yahweh is God, it means all the other gods aren't in the Old Testament it's, content. It's so beautifully done. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, I hate it that most people don't see this kind of stuff. Yeah. That, you know, I read this and it's a shiver down the spine moment mm -hmm. and I go, that was amazing. That was beautiful. That was so eloquently done. Yet, if you're not diving into the scriptures, you miss so many things like this that Matt and I continually point out. Yeah, so some of Peter's, I think, theology here is when we put on Christ, the imperishable seed, through our baptismal identity, we identify with him and we inherit the imperishability through the re resurrection when we identify with his resurrection equals eternal life. We see this in Romans 3.23, John 3.16, 1 John 5.12, the opposite, um, the contrasting of life and death, yep. of eternal life and perish, of yep. wither and fall. Yeah. Wither and fall. All yep. of those things that connects to this verse here and those who reject this will be like the grass and they will wither and fall. So it's, it's outward identification language that there should never be a time where somebody is wondering where you're at where mm -hmm. where does this person exist there should always anybody should know that you have been marked by the holiness and purification of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ yep. so he concludes this section here with talking about babies and milk and um, Peter speaks of this uh, of how to live in light of your new birth the family ethics it says basically put off malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. So this is another kind of wordplay going on mm -hmm. here because the idea is that that babies are continually like kind of fighting. There's also an idea here that, you know, when you're young, children language, that you just kind of walk in faith. And so it's a contronym again. It's it's contrasting the good and the bad of the babies and saying, now let's get on the same page and put aside it's kind of a idea of removing your clothing. But but again, this goes back to what he just talked about yeah. of identification language. Yeah, so that putting off, um, like you said, removing clothing, it could be an allusion to baptism, yep. um, which uh, Paul uses it in Galatians chapter three that way. Yep. Um, but when, when Peter here talks about babies and milk, he's not really referring to Christian maturity, but he's using the metaphors different than Paul does. Because when Paul, and with the Corinthians, he's like, meat. I, yeah. I wish I could get you off the milk and right. onto the meat. P Peter's not using that. He's saying that the source of our, um, our substance should be Jesus and the Word of God. Yeah. Um, and that's what you need to have your life built on and not these things out in the Greco-Roman culture that yeah. he puts out like hypocrisy, envy, slander, all those type of things don't have any part in you if you are truly feeding on Jesus. Yeah, and that's where the wordplay comes mm -hmm. in, is, is it's uh, wordplay on Lagos, so the enduring word. Mm -hmm. Yep, and so he puts this, that love is at the heart of the whole conversation, that um, Peter must be saying that you've heard and learned of love and now he's exhorting them to actually love. So it's the whole yeah. Hebrew thought of hearing and doing. Yep. Um, that's what he's getting at. He's like, you've heard about loving, and now that you're partaking of Christ, you need to put it into action. This is a little bit of slap in the face language, especially to his Jewish audience, uh -huh. because they would think that they are doing that, and this is the thing that for generations they've been warned against, and yet mm -hmm. he's saying, but that's what you're doing here. Yeah, so it's all summed up in growing in salvation. 
um, it still puts salvation as a future thing. It's yep. not something that they have. It's something they grow into. It's, it's a important journey. important to take note of that. Yeah. yeah. So this um, is done by tasting and drinking of the word is what it says. And that's Jesus' teaching. That's Jesus himself. And that's living out discipleship um, is, yeah. I think, the metaphors that he's getting at here. So when I read this, I, I would bring somebody after this to say, what does purity mean to you? You know, what what is it? What is it? based on how you love, how you interact with those around you, how they interact with you, how they see you. Yeah, a lot of times we'll just put purity simply as moral and ethical things, but Peter specifically connects purity to the way that you love your brothers and sisters, especially he's, those in the household He's God. also connecting it with salvation, which makes no sense if you think about it as a momentary, you know, line in the dirt. He's talking about, you know, mm -hmm. every day you should become closer to Christ in your holiness and in your interaction with it so that that's that journey that we've described. All right, so we're going to conclude today with the last section of Peter's argument here, uh, his first argument of how to live out his thesis statement, which is 1 Peter 2, 4 to 10. I know this is one of your favorite verses, Ryan. So I'll, I'll read, read it. it. Yep. <laughs> and coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. The precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of tumbling and rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word and to this doom they are also disappointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, I love that one, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I need a whole series on this one. <laughs> yeah. So. Peter reminds his audience here their identity as a community, not as individuals. It's all plural language. Such here. communal language. Yep. And this is this is the first place where I just say we have just lost this kind of thinking. Mm -hmm. I mean, you would have gone to war with somebody in the Old Testament when they were thinking communally, whether you agreed with them or not. If they were your brother, you would have joined, you know, you would have given your life for them even though you didn't believe in it because they were that communal in nature thinking. Yeah, so this section we've been talking about today is really a lot about the way you think, yep. and then this all sets up the next section that we'll talk about next week, which is how you should act as people, and yep. he uses three examples of how you interact with and people and serve those, and the really the true definition of biblical submission. So if you watch our videos much, even though I, I joke about making a whole series on this, you're probably already there. Mm -hmm. You probably already get what's going on in the language. So in a way, we can spend less time, not more time here. Yeah. But again, there's just so much. So the first thing you know we, we have to address is living stones, the church, and living sacrifices. What's the connection being made? Yeah, so Simon, or Peter here, is given the name Petros, Peter, which means little stone, rock, or rocky, yep. you could say. And it makes sense that he would use metaphors of stones because that's yeah. the name Jesus yeah. gave him. So he says that Christ here is the living stone because Jesus is alive. He's yeah. been raised from the dead. And that's the major point that um, the world rejects that God, uh, rejects God, and but God has elected us to be like Christ. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so this is backward kingdom thinking again. You know, you kind of got to get into... Peter's world of these rocks, big, small uh -huh. rocks, things like that, and, and think of it as a contrast between the kingdom of God and the world. Yeah, so we are basically the thing that God, that the world has rejected, Jesus, God has elected, right. is, is the big thing. It's upside down. So yeah. believers are together, individual stones being built up on Christ, who is the cornerstone it talks about, and that cornerstone was the thing that makes, makes the whole building fit together. 
he also kind of uses language of him being the foundation here also as well as that and when he does that he uses these these association of family household metaphorical words that are going to be language that they use on a regular basis but he's tying that into the ancient grafting of the royal priesthood and so you kind of get this family temple sacred space being connected to the royal priesthood. Yeah, and then the church here, he says, is the priesthood, just as Israel in its original context was supposed to be. He yep. said, I want you to be a nation of priests. God originally tells Another them, but then, it, little slaps but then it kind on. of, they failed and it fell to just the Levites. Yeah. But now it's back to, because Jesus is the high priest, that we're all kind of the priests under him in that. And the priesthood's job was to offer up sacrifices and go between God and the people and the people and God. Yes. And, and it connects all back to the spiritual sacrifices back to Romans 12, 1 and 2 again. And again, P Peter and Paul are just so Tracking. in unison here. I'll put Paul at Romans. You might fight yeah. me on that one. But, uh, yeah. you know, there's just so much going on that are connecting all the dots and mm -hmm. what what they're going. And then from there, it's he just goes continues to reinforce that language. So he goes to the stumbling stone and offense at Jesus. Yeah, so Peter next quotes uh, Psalm 118.22 and... Uh, and again, there's a huge, this is another squirrel moment, there's a huge study to be found in actually going back and reading what's being quoted here and mm -hmm. trying to figure this out. Yeah. And, and I'm gonna say, this is not an easy task. You're gonna need to put on your Hebrew thinking hat to do this mm -hmm. because again, when we first read them, you go, how is that quoting it? But it's it's amazing. And again, these are more videos to come probably. And Peter's quoting here all of these from the Septuagint. Yeah. Which is like every quote that Peter has pretty much in First Peter that at least that we've gone to yet yep. has been LXX, the yep. Septuagint, not the Masoretic text. Yep. So you might, if you cross-reference it back to the Old Testament in your Bible, you might see, oh, well, it's worded a little different. Yeah. Get a Septuagint. <laughs> so it was the Bible of the early church. Yep. So, um, so when he's talking here, we see that in the Gospels, Jesus' message offended many believers yep. and non-believers alike. Yep. And so some examples of this is um, John the Baptist and even his disciples when he, um, when he says this is the my body and blood. John thinks he's going to be a political messiah. Yep. Um, and his John's Who will be the greatest? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and John's disciples then ask if Jesus is the one and he, Jesus kind of says, yeah, bless are you if you're not offended at me. I'm not going to do this the way you think it's going to be yeah, done. So, exactly. so in this context here in Peter, um, it's about the non-believers, but in, in the Gospels, it's usually about those who have already believed that are offended, so it's both. So there is a little bit of a, a thing going on here that the world recognized a lot of people as Jesus's disciples. Mm -hmm. And so they would kind of group them all in together. But what's happening is Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus makes a differentiation uh, between his followers and between those that would be true disciples of his. And so we see that multiple times. And Peter is picking up on that same wordplay of Jesus of, of kind of, you know, that's the whole, what the whole letter is here is he's not necessarily drawing the line anywhere and saying, you're not saved. We hear that a lot in our mm -hmm. culture. People yeah. want to do that. He's not doing that. He's just saying, you need to step up and live in holiness as Jesus called you to do. Yeah. And so what, what we see here a lot is in the same ways that Jesus is offensive and the gospel to some people in their way of thinking is that Peter says that through the way that you live your lives um, and living out the the kingdom ethic, it, it's might it's going to be offensive to those around you because um, the way that Jesus calls people to live as and actually the gospel message itself is kind of treasonous. Yeah, <laughs> and so yeah. what's really what's really kind of crazy here is that again there's contronym language going on saying that like oftentimes the Christians are the ones that are offended. Mm -hmm. And so as we as we go to reach the world, we should try not to offend the world. We should show them the love of the world. Uh -huh. Yet many of you are offending not only the world, but each other. Yeah. Um, it's interesting in Acts 17, um, when the gospel was presented, it actually caused riots. And it's treasonous. It's yeah. treasonous. And, like, and they, it's because they lived for allegiance to Jesus alone, and they were claiming that he was king, um, and Caesar wasn't, and, and I mean, 
when we look at things today, we look at it, allegiance to Jesus basically means that he is our sole allegiance. It's not yeah. allegiance to Democrat or Republican parties. It's And in our day today, the gospel isn't really treasonous in America. No, it's not. Should it be? It probably should. It be, should maybe. Be. You know, yeah. that's, that's kind of, you know, what he's saying is it calls us to die to ourselves and really die to our entanglement with the world is what mm -hmm. it's alluding to. And this is not new language. I mean, this goes all the way back to this royal priesthood of being, you know, pulled out. And that's really Exodus language is yep. what was the Exodus all about? Pulling people Pulling out. Pulling people out. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So when we look here about um, Jesus's way of life is kind of offensive because you know what it calls us to love our enemies to turn the other cheek to go the extra mile and and these are things that are basically take away the tribalistic nature of the world and we say as christians hey we're just gonna love everybody yeah and and it it kind of drives the world nuts because yeah. what you're not gonna participate in our politics you're not gonna yeah. our partisan tribal politics you're not gonna participate in the who's in who's out and make group distinctions and all that no, we're just going to love everybody. Yeah. I mean, sometimes we see this interpreted wrongly and that people feel like they have to take this staunch stand on Christianity. And in doing so, they offend everybody and drive the world farther and farther uh -huh. away. And so you got to get the right. Peter's frame. saying don't be an offense to everybody else in, you know, kind of taking on this legalistic personification of being holy but to truly be holy as Jesus was holy and the offense to the world is going to be a little countercultural in the love that you display to them. Yep. Yeah, that's good. Um, so then he gets into a bunch of titles here afterwards. He kind of finishes up this section of giving them their identity. Yeah. And remember, this is a mixed Jew and Gentile church, but he yep. uses all of these titles that were given to the nation of Israel after they were let out of Egypt. Grafting <laughs> so, language. Yeah, yeah, all the grafting language. So Peter first says that they're a chosen race. Um, this contrasts kind of the stumbling and offense of the world um, at them, and, but is saying that they're actually chosen. And so that in Peter's um, mind the church and jesus are indistinguishable from each yeah, other yeah and he's the language is y'all language we uh -huh. call it all the time it's yeah. like we're together here more communal yeah. thinking yeah the first sentence is like the the hebrew word allah yeah. uh, um not to be confused with the muslim god <laughs> but but it's the it's the word for y'all yeah. um but it's like the most emphatic um pronounced uh, version of it in, in Greek. So he's getting their attention yeah. right off the get-go. Hey, goes, here's your identity. And it goes back to 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, the, the chosen race again. Mm -hmm. You know, this this is who we are, chosen exiles or aliens. Yeah, we see this kind of all over in, in the Old Testament of them being the chosen race. Specifically, you see the, this language described in like Isaiah 43 and uh, Esther 16, Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 10, 1 Kings 3. Three, uh, all over so it's... precious people God's chosen portion like uh -huh. I, I just love that kind of language that you know you are a part of this sacred ancient lineage mm -hmm. you know and we keep saying Exodus 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 because that's what it's saying and got and, and Peter here is definitely challenged to live as this royal priesthood this holy nation this set apart God's possession his portion way of thinking. Yeah, and the word for race here is genos in, in Greek, and it often, in the Greco-Roman culture, it was a word used for the family lineage. Yeah, so yeah. it's connecting back that family language once again. Yeah, pretty neat. So then we get into a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's possession, and this again recalls the Exodus. Exodus 19, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, Exodus 19 of the covenant people. So in Asia Minor here, and then the royal priesthood are understood kind of, would have understood like this priesthood language in contrast to the local gods. So there's a word play going on here because what he's saying is originally every person listening to this, both Jew and Gentile, knew that the Israelites were supposed to all have been originally called to be a royal priesthood, yet they fell miserably. And so the contrast is Peter setting it up saying, now look, are you repeating that sort of thing or are you truly going to be set apart? And this could be even a good evangelistic tool for them because not everybody got to be a priest in the pagan yeah, societies. And then true. when they would be communicating with someone, they'd be like, oh, well, what do you do? Uh, well, I'm a priest in, in the 
basically the temple of my God, which is the, the church, and be like, wow, how do you get to do that? And you're like, well, actually, our whole nation is the nation of priests. This is like the, NBA, the NBA stars of the day. This uh -huh. is who you esteem to be, and not everybody made the cut. And yeah. that's where Jesus kind of gets into my yoke is easy language mm -hmm. of like, everybody makes the get cut. Get on board. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so then it, it goes on to uh, all of these things priesthood, nation, God's possession are all part of the, the Old Testament picture of God's God's people and it all connects back to Eden. So we're going back to Eden and then he's also, as we've mentioned eschatologically, setting the bar for that. So he's connecting the beginning and the end as Matt and I often love to do. What starts in Eden ends with a picture that looks very similar to it. Yep, and then he concludes with um, the, a picture of um, being called out of darkness into God's glorious light, um, being transferred from one kingdom to another. And it's a, again, Exodus language. Contronym language, yep. yep. And cosmic battle language. Yep. It's the blood that marks us out as called uh, people into the kingdom of light. Um, this is a fascinating thing. Like, again, like there's some people have written on this, but there's just so much in the contrast of it. Yeah, and so then at the uh, the very end, it's interesting that Peter quotes Hosea um, 1 verses 10 yeah. and, and 2 verses 3. And in the original context of Hosea, the people that aren't my people, you were unloved, now you're loved. It's in Hosea, uh, Hosea names his daughter unloved and names his son, not my people. And that's a prophetic, basically, um, it's about the prophetic reversal that God had in store for yeah. his people is that, yeah, you're disobeying and you've been kicked out of the land and all of right. this, but I'm going to take you back as my people. But here, Peter is applying it to the church, a mixed audience yeah. of primarily Gentile, but Jews as well. Paul does the same thing in Romans chapter 9, yeah. 24 to 26. And the point here is that the Gentiles are also God's people. Right. So you can't keep going through making these distinct distinctions between the church and Israel, and different theologies want to do that with this. What what it comes down to is all Israel language, and yep. so we've gone over that in several different films, and this, again, as Matt alluded to in, in Romans 9, ties in very carefully with that kind of thinking. Yeah, and so we see here that um, to be a Jew in the even in the Old Testament, was the one who was circumcised of the heart, yeah. not circumcised of the flesh. And this yeah. gets back to our works of the law discussion we just had. Problems with dispensationalism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, like you said, the, where dispensationalists get off is that God has some special plan for yeah. the modern day nation yeah. of Israel. And God, but the thing is, God has the same plan for all the nations, that they will all ultimately be part of his kingdom, yeah. the kingdom of God. Yeah grafting in. So yep. there's there's just so much here and I mean I feel like Matt and I in most of our videos like we we pretty much cover everything. This one is very difficult to cover yeah. everything. Like I said there's yeah. just so much so much so many squirrels going on. I could probably you know I joke that I could oftentimes you know do a video for 45 minutes on just literally one verse out of here. Mm -hmm. And I mean, this could turn into the never ending Expedition 44 series, on you know, yeah. on First Peter. <laughs> but at some point we just have to go. And I think that you've been prepared or teased with how to jump in further here. And I hope that you take that ap application and dive in deeply. And there's just, it's, it's an amazing study. So yeah. thank you for joining us today and may God bless you and keep you along your journey together communally as the holy set apart believers of the Lord.